happening, people? It's another week of Taking Notes with Dr. John Carroll. I am joining you following a Sunday night victory for my Eagles and 15 days since hostages were taken from Israel in a terrorist attack by Hamas. I continue to pray for their safe return. I continue to pray for the preservation of civilian life in what looks like it will be quite the conflict. And finally, I pray that humanitarian efforts will be able to proceed as necessary. It's been a long week, a tiring week, but I am filled. And I just want to talk about that a little bit because it is germane to all that is going on in the world and certainly on brand um, in terms of education and learning and how that all comes together. So I, for the last three years, have been given the privilege of being the organizing chair of what is called the Pollyanna Conference. And this is a conference that started out in New York and first hosted at Dalton School, prestigious school in New York. And it involves schools sending representative groups called pods to a site and spending the day first listening to a keynote and then attending breakout sessions amongst the different stakeholders in attendance, hearing a student presentation, and then finally at the end of the day, reconvening in their school pods to talk about their plans towards diversity, social justice, or in general, just making their school community a more welcoming place. And so for three years now, I've had pleasure of working on this, but this year was special in that when we came up with the theme, which was addressing hate with intention, came up with that theme in January, my partner in crime, Janine Jones and I, and little did we know that we'd be in a situation where we would be in the midst of a heinous hate act when you think about the Hamas attack. And so thinking about the organization this year, we not only wanted to have a great keynote, but we thought the keynote only gives one perspective. So what if we um, added to the words that the audience hears and, and invite another voice to participate? And so after our keynote this year was given by Reverend Natasha Reed Rice, amazing speaker. I encourage you to look up her resume. We welcome to the stage Dr. Saba Sumek, a great academic and researcher from the American Jewish Committee, and had them have a fireside chat. And in previous years, our keynote has always inspired the audience and sent them off into their breakout sessions ready to talk and ready to share and ready to reflect but this year was even more the case because following the inspiring words the affirming words the thought-provoking words of reverend reed rice the audience was able to get a little more insight 
from Reverend Rice as she was questioned um, and in conversation with Dr. Sumek. And so it is a conference that this year drew 350 participants. We had 30 participating schools. And what was encouraging beyond just the additional number of schools was the level at which schools participated. Because again, I mentioned you're supposed to have a particular set of people who come for this pod. So in addition to the head of school, you're supposed to bring two of each of the following groups, two trustees, two administrators, two faculty members, two diversity, equity, inclusion professionals, two parents, two alums, and two students make up a full pod. And the number of full pods we had this year was, was great to see the number of heads of school we had this year at 20 plus, I want to say 23-ish, was great to see because in previous years we have seen less. When the head of school comes, it signals a certain seriousness because that person is in the room to hear from everybody, all the stakeholders at the end of the day in those pods. So that's always a very important barometer uh, for me. But to me, more than anything, when I think about this work that I do and others do all across the country in diversity, equity, and inclusion, with the goal of making sure schools stay connected and that folks aren't othered in any way, and that in these times where there is hurt, where there is division, that at least in the school capacity, we can still find ways to have connection and community. This event to me is one of those that signals how serious institutions are about dealing with that. So I wanted to highlight a couple things because I truly believe that this type of activity, whether you do the actual Pollyanna format or you tweak it for your own is valuable. And we have seen in our locality that you know, we've had schools from San Diego come up and, and, and do the conference and then start their own. Um, and it was encouraging to hear that, you know, our Jewish day schools in the area are thinking about uh, perhaps having their own. We usually have the conference on a Saturday. That, of course, is the Sabbath. And so Jewish day schools are thinking about doing theirs. Diocese schools, Catholic schools, thinking about doing their own. And so for me, that's so encouraging because if we all are doing this activity, if we all are taking the time to do this activity, then we are developing shared language. We are developing shared practice, which can therefore lead to shared understanding and more connection. So there's that. And I wanted to highlight a couple of other things that I took away from this year's conference. It takes a great deal of time and effort and sweat equity. So forgive me if this is where my focus is this evening while yet not forgetting about all that is going on in the world. So number one, number one on why this conference was, was really a big deal. And I continue to believe in it, no matter how many sleeping, sleepless nights it provides me. The first is that the belief in diversity, equity, and inclusion work continues to grow. When we first had this conference at our place, we probably attracted 15 schools. And like I said, this year we were up to 30. Part of that being that in past years, 
certainly for students, we limited student participation in high school, high school age students, so ninth through twelfth grade. And for us, that didn't make the most sense because we have a lot of our partner and peer schools here in SoCal who are either elementary or K through eight. And so not being able to bring students meant that they weren't being able to fully participate. And so this year we created an elementary and middle school part where students could come in and that really enhanced the experience for those schools having their students participate. But on top of that, again, the belief is growing. I think that's witnessed by the number of full pods that we had. It wasn't as difficult to fill pods. And I really don't care about how that's happening, why that's happening, whether it's because of all of uh, the acts of hate that are going around in the world or acts of discrimination or acts of intolerance, which is making people need to feel the need to find you know, spaces to figure it out. I don't, I don't even care. I'm just glad that people are there and willing to participate in the conversation because so often when things happen, people retreat into their own separate corners and forget about the resolution process. The hurt prevents taking the time to participate in the resolution. And again, in schools, the resolution is necessary because you have to come back to school and be in the same space. So to be coming to school, whether student or parent or, or teacher or administrator, to come to school, the school space, carrying hurt, whether from in, something that's happened inside the community or outside the community, that doesn't make for a productive and positive school environment. And the reality is that because of all the division and the polarization that is happening in the world, there is behavior that is flowing over into schools, whether it is the use of the N-word. We've seen a rising um, incidences in the displaying of swastikas on campuses, the creating of, of, of swastikas on campuses. We are seeing schools still struggle with how to include and make schools inclusive for the LGBTQ plus community. But I'm glad to see that schools are reaching a point where they seriously want to come to the table and discuss how they can do that because they realize that it's important. Because again, spending an inordinate amount of time on the hurt that happens in communities could be better used thinking about ways to prevent those incidents from happening in the first place. So that's number one. Number two, this conference is great because it provides the time. When things happen in schools, so often the, the lament, the complaint is that there is no time to deal with this. Terrorist attack happens in Israel and, and while schools know they have to provide the space for students and adults alike to process, there's a lament about the time that it takes away from the curriculum. So this conference was an opportunity without classes going on, without programming going on, 
to think about how you respond, to plan for how you respond. Because what this event, this most recent terrorist attack that has caused so much harm and is um, really being felt in multiple communities, particularly the Jewish community, as there are still hostages in Gaza, is that there must be a protocol in place for when a school as an institution decides to speak out. And on this, I'm not even just talking about elementary, middle, or high schools. Because we have seen on university campuses just how much struggle there is and tension arises when students of the college age who are much older use their agency to speak in certain directions while other communities are hurting. But we'll have to address that at another time. Today, I just want to focus on the idea that schools have to think about that protocol. And again, this, this conference provided folks the space to do that. It is sad that there has been so much hateful action in the world befalling a number of communities that schools have been put in the position where they have to feel like they have to speak out all the time. Whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's Stop Asian Hate, whether it's anti-Semitism, whether it's Islamophobia, whether it's anti-trans or anti-LGBTQ+. These are things that have all been real, both in the States and abroad. And so if a school chooses to speak out on one, and I've seen all across social media, the comparison often being made to how schools responded to Black Lives Matter movement. If you speak out on Black Lives Matter, then how do you not speak out in this most recent terrorist attack against Israel? Or how do you not speak out when there are swastikas on campus? Or how do you not speak out when students are assaulted for their gender identity? And it was very interesting because I get the chance to read all the notes that come out of the breakout sessions, particularly the sentiment that there should be more time for schools to respond. Schools should not have to feel like they should be knee-jerk in their reactions. But often that's the call. And so again, if you have a protocol in place, you can take the time to go through that protocol and at least offer that assurance to communities who are feeling hurt that we will go through our process and there will be a reckoning at the end of it. But certainly in this case, as I've checked in with friends and loved ones, many feel that schools who took that time and, and were slow and did not have an immediate response to condemn terror that has left people feeling unseen and unsafe. And no school 
should want that for anyone in their community. The final thing I'll say before I wrap this up is that conferences like the Pollyanna Conference provide network. And certainly when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion work, the more network you have, the better. It makes you a better professional. It allows you to be in community so often. Unfortunately, I would say diversity practitioners often are offices of one. And so when that is the case, there is so much that falls onto that professional's desk, which can be physically and emotionally draining. So when you have network, you have ways to maintain your sanity, to restore your calm, your peace, and allows you to move forward in working within your school community. And the same is true for all the stakeholders. Students found network in being at this conference and knowing that there were others who feel and experience school in the same way they do. And perhaps they found and learned of strategies for how to cope and move forward. Parents found network in understanding that the things that happen in their schools happen in other schools too, and there are ways to combat that, whether through organization, whether through advocacy. Heads of schools certainly have networks. Now we continue to encourage that. Because again, the more that schools like here in SoCal can work together to, com to combat global problems, racism, anti-Semitism, sexism, the more communities writ large can feel safe and included. So that's all I'll say on that for now. I do want to talk a little bit about something else, diversity, equity, inclusion related that was going on this week. Because that's always something that I will defend and we'll get into that right after this. Second thing I want to get into this week is this notion that it is DEI work that is at the root of raised anti-Semitism that we are seeing in this country. This particular op-ed was written by Dr. Tabby Ali and appeared in the New York Post. And the attention-grabbing headline, good, good job to the headline writers, is that I was a DEI director. DEI drives anti-Semitism, which, of course, given my day-to-day, -day, I disagree with. So it moved me to want to go through the article and just kind of pick out the points that I would most disagree with for the sake of clarification. What I will give Dr. Lee, and where we agree, where you would agree, is that there is a brand of DEI practice in this country just for the sake of saying that it is there. She terms it toxic DEI. I would call it just bad DEI. 
but toxic works. And in this definition, DEI is simplified to the most basic levels that there are the oppressed and there are oppressors. And so that becomes the jumping off point for Dr. Lee's experience as she was hired as a DEI professional at De Anza Community College here in California. And so upon starting this position and starting to implement programs, most notably around Jewish cultural practices, she found the campus to be very pro-Palestinian and so she therefore tried to implement a balance by introducing Jewish speakers, having Jewish celebrations. And she was told that Jews are white oppressors and that jobs as faculty and staff members was to, or the jobs of faculty and staff members was to quote, decentral whiteness. And so immediately I take objection to the idea that blanketly Jews are a white and of course oppressors. Jews are part of a diaspora. That is something that we've had to discuss more and more, certainly learn about. As we look at the conflict between Israel and Hamas, so any notion that all Jews would be considered white is already at its root a problem, certainly not something that is at the core of, of real DEI work, blanketly painting people in one, in one way. Diversity is just that. We're looking at allowing space for all to feel seen, to feel safe, to be engaged in equitable practice and to be included in whatever the space may be. But again, toxic DEI, as Dr. Lee describes it, does something completely opposite. And so Dr. Lee goes on further to talk about this brand of DEI and in supporting her case about how this brand of DEI therefore causes an, an exclusion and othering of the Jewish community in particular, she notes this study where 96% of Israel-focused tweets by DEI staff criticized the Jewish state. So immediately, as a fellow researcher, I'm like, whoa, where's this study at? And my training tells me that to question, okay, what are the methods? What questions are asked? What are these critiques of the Jewish state? And so did a little digging and I was able to find that this study was conducted by the Heritage Foundation, rather conservative group in their philosophy. And their method was to look at the tweets of 741 DEI personnel. Be curious to know at what level. But let's just assume they looked at 741 
heads of DEI across 65 college campuses. Again, would love to know the geographic distribution. That would tell you a lot. And they, as a comparison, compared the number of Israel-focused tweets with the number of China-focused tweets. And that is where they were able to find the 96% that were in critique of the Jewish state, whereas they found only 62% had any critique of China. And so their conclusion, therefore, is that there was an overwhelming pattern. I would dispute that. But okay, let's go with the 96% overwhelming pattern that there's a bias amongst DEI professionals towards the Jewish state. The question I'd be left with there is what does that mean for action? At the end of the day, diversity, equity, inclusion work comes down to what are the actions you take to make Canvas either more unified or more divided? And so for me, this study means very little if you can't correlate it in some way to what kind of actions were being taken on campus. Now, in the case of Dr. Lee, it is clear that she was on a campus where trying to bring balance, trying to include historically underrepresented voices was not welcome. That is not the case of good DEI, I would call it comprehensive DEI programs. Next thing I wanna to get to with Dr. Lee is the idea that this quote, this outpouring of anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic hatred is direct result of DEI's insistence that Jews are oppressors. Again, this is not the pillar of any real DEI program. This is one of those programs I would call that is just giving lip service to DEI for whatever reason, whether it is for additional funding, whether it is to avoid backlash from advocacy groups, whatever the case may be. Any program that seeks to exclude voices from the conversation as opposed to bringing voices into the tent is not a strong DEI program. But I can tell you an experience across a number of different places, because not only do I work in, in one place, but I do engage with professionals from across the country. I've had the pleasure of working at and facilitating a number of national conferences recently that bring together students from across the country. What has actually happened in many places is that as anti-Semitism has risen, certainly in the United States, Jewish students have felt more need to gather in affinity spaces, create affinity groups, and advocate for themselves while exploring their identity in ways similar to other ethnic and social groups. So whereas the premise of this story is that this op-ed is that DEI is driving anti-Semitism, 
in reality, I would make the argument that DEI is providing a venue to combat and resist anti-Semitism. One last quote from Dr. Lee's op-ed. It's inevitable for an ideology that demeans an entire group of people while accusing them of perpetrating massive injustice. Again, DEI programs are not created for the sake of creating villains and heroes. Even those that would say, well, white people don't get to have an affinity group. I would tell you that strong DEI programs provide spaces for those who are considered white. And I'm just going to give the disclaimer that race is a social construction. But good DEI programs not only allow space for historically underrepresented groups to explore identity, but also for white students, white faculty to do the same. Because even in the construction of white as a race, that does not mean that there is not an ethnic identity that exists. And so strong DEI programs allow for that and also encourage dialogue across those identities for connection and the building of community. So I understand that in these times of great polarization, of great anxiety, of great frustration, there's often the desire to identify the boogeyman. It is not diversity, equity, inclusion. It is not diversity, equity, inclusion that created the march in Charlottesville, the Tiki Torch March in Charlottesville, where the participants were yelling, the Jews shall not replace us. It was not DEI that created shirts for January 6th that noted 6 million wasn't enough. Highly anti-Semitic propaganda t-shirt. Those were not created by DEI offices. What does drive anti-Semitism is the growing faction of white nationalism that we are seeing play out across the globe. And so therefore, I feel very strongly need to speak out when I see such articles like Dr. Lee's when they do not make the distinction between what she identified correctly, in my estimation, as toxic DEI, but then also talking about what good DEI looks like. So I wanted to take a couple minutes to do that. But now let's get on to our honor roll because we just need a lot of positive these days. Coming right up.
Expressed by John Carroll and his guest in the preceding podcast are solely that of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers, companies, or other associated parties. Okay.